Thanks for joining us here at the Light San Diego podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. For more information, please visit our website, lightsandiego.com. Welcome. We are uh, continuing our series called Intention, where we're talking about different areas of our life where God gives us clear and wise ways of living with intention. And we're going to be spending the next few weeks talking about relationships. And the reason we're talking about relationships is that God has a lot to say in how we live amongst one another. Also, we're living in a time where the relationships that we've had, some of them for years, have experienced a sense of strain and ambiguity that needs some refreshing and some clarity of what's God's heart in the midst of the relationships that we have. And one of the things that I love before we dive into the specific areas of these relationships is understanding that Yes, God is a creator, but he's also a relational creator. At the very beginning of the Bible, we are introduced to a God who, as he creates, uses the plural, which later on as scripture unfolds, we find out that there is a triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, that is uh, co-eternal and co-authoritative, So for all of eternity, he's had all of the power, which means he's had all of the relationship for all of it. And one of the things that that means for us is that how we live and why we live in relationship largely is because we are made in the image of God. We were made for community. Aristotle, the, the famous Greek philosopher, had this question. said, how can God be eternally and essentially good when goodness involves being good to another. And at that time, uh, this is a few hundred years before Christ showed up on the earth, there was this idea of either the kind of the monotheistic idea of Judaism or a polytheistic view of kind of the pagan cultures. And it really wasn't until Jesus and the authors of the New Testament that there began to be this clarity of God is a relational being of the Trinity. And now, the sermon is not on the Trinity, but I think we have to begin there. But Aristotle had a good point, that if God doesn't, isn't able to be good to someone for all of eternity, then how is he essentially good? Michael Reeves, in his brilliant book called Delighting in the Trinity, speaks to this concept that we have to begin, this creator God has to begin as a relational being. He says this in his book, For it is only when you grasp what it means for God to be a trinity that you really sense the beauty, the overflowing kindness, the heart-grabbing loveliness of God. And we see this, how God kind of lays out his creation, right? How there's this poem with this cadence after he creates each thing, after each day, he says, it is good, the Hebrew word tov. And after he creates man and woman in his image, he says, in our Bibles, it is very good, but really in the Hebrew, it's tov tov. And in the Hebrew language, when you repeat something, it adds emphasis. It's almost, it's almost not just saying very good. It's just like, it's so good. It's, you see this inflection in the poet's writing that when God sees man and woman, humanity come together, he looks at, at us made in his image and just says, it is good, which is in contrast to chapter two, the very first time God says, it is not good. 
And after we've seen God saying, it is good, it is good, it is very good, all of a sudden we're introduced to Adam, which is the Hebrew word for humanity. It says, it is not good for man to be alone. We are intrinsically relational. We were designed to be with one another, which explains a lot why the last couple of years have been so hard. A lot of what has been taken from us has not just been not just been biological, but it's been relational. And our hope is in this series is to recover, uh, recover some of that. When Jesus shows up on earth, he begins to not only speak into what we know of relationships, begins to start flipping our ideas of relationships on its heads. For example, he starts talking about how the biological family is one thing, but there's also an emphasis on a kingdom family. He starts talking to his disciples, and before you know it, they're now disciple makers. He talks about his disciples, that they're no longer servants, but they're called friends. As a matter of fact, he goes as far to talking about their enemies, rather than being recipients of our bitterness, they're recipients of our blessing. Jesus does a number on relationships. But for today's message, we're going to focus specifically on the theme and the concept of friendship. And what does Jesus have to say about friendship? And also, how does Jesus model friendship? And because no matter who you are listening to this, this is a scope that involves everyone. In the next few weeks, we're going to dive into some more specifics like marriage, uh, a parenting conference. We'll talk about singleness and dating. We'll talk about workplace relationships, how to respond to people who are enemies and the such. And so we want to, but before we dive into the specific areas, we want to talk about an area of relationships that includes everyone. And so we're going to be looking for our text today in John chapter 11, and we're going to look at three different themes that show up in this chapter. Number one, we're going to find out how Jesus models trust of the Father in our friendships. Number two, he tells us how to speak truth in your friendships. Number three, how to enter into others' pain in your friendships. Fourthly, how to unwrap the grave clothes we carry in our friendships. And lastly, we're going to just talk about where we are in this story. This is one of my favorite passages of Scripture. So let's begin at the beginning of John chapter 11. We're going to talk about how Jesus models trusting in the Father within our friendships. John 11, 1 says this, Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and his sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. Uh, what, what a profound and beautiful title given to Lazarus. The one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. Now, again, this is, this is a, a shock as you're reading this, that Jesus loved this family. Lazarus, as far as what we know from the New Testament, was one of his dearest friends. And his action, once hearing about this urgent matter in Lazarus, that's literally a life and death situation. He says he stays. That There's something else happening behind the story about God's glorification that we don't know and his disciples don't know at that time. 
If you skip down to verse 27, it says that on his arrival, Jesus found Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days, meaning that he stayed for two days and then took a two-day journey. It just, it, it just feels like there's this lack of urgency and hurry. It just, just leaves the reader very confused and complex. And rightfully so in John eleven thirty seven 37 says, But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? So there's confusion. Like, Jesus, we've seen you do all these miracles, and you show up late. You show up four days after he's been buried. And the reason why four days is really, uh, is really specific is because in the Jewish mindset and in their belief system, the spirit would hover over the body for the first three days after someone died. And on the fourth day, the spirit would go and to be with God. And so by saying Lazarus was dead for four days, meaning that he, there was no hope of resurrection. And yet Jesus shows up. And a lot of you might be asking, like, what, what does that teach us about friendship? Does that just teach us to like, not be urgent, to not care? What, what's the lesson in that? And I think the lesson that we find in this passage is that when it comes to our friendships, the people we hold closest to us, the people that we love dearly, needs to be influenced and shaped by our trust of the Heavenly Father, recognizing that they are first and foremost His, that our life is first and foremost His, and how we conduct ourselves is ultimately in love and in grace and in mercy towards those. But oftentimes the cadence and the pace of how we do that is, is not how the world would assume. Right? It's not what we would just um, immediately think to. Because the other end of this is not only does Jesus appear to be slow, but if you keep, if you keep reading after he kind of pauses those couple of days, Verse 11 says, after he had said this, he went on to tell them, my friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So when he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake, I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Then Thomas, known as Didymus, said to the rest of his disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Now, what's that about? What we find is the reason why if Jesus goes back to Judea, there's a very likely chance that he'll be killed, and he eventually is. And so what appears to be this lackadaisical attitude actually is an attitude, although it's pausing and it's, and it's peculiar, actually takes a ton of courage that Jesus, by going there, is risking his life and the life of his disciples to go be with his friend. And so we see this paradox of Jesus being slower than we would like him to be, yet taking greater risk than many of us would be willing to do. And again, the question is, well, what's the lesson? How do we model our, our priorities and our relationships and our friendships like Jesus? And again, it goes back to that we have to trust the heart of the Father, that he loves and cares for the people that we love and care for even more than we do. And the reason why this is important is maybe for some of you, uh, it's easy for you to play the role of what I like to call the martyr, right? Or, or the Messiah complex. And whenever your friend is in need or anyone's in need, it is so easy for you just to rush in and to offer whatever help you have. And after months and years, and maybe a lifetime of this, so many people who live this kind of lifestyle can oftentimes feel very hurt. 
can feel very tired and exhausted, maybe even rejected, that their attempts to love people, to be sacrificial, end up kind of coming back to them in a really kind of hurtful way. And I think one of the things that we learn from this model is that um, as we engage with people, there's this question that often we ask ourselves is, how much do we hang out with those who like, who bring us life, who pour into us, then how much do of our time do we spend into those we have to pour into? Maybe people who have harder situations or harder personalities for us to be in. I don't know if you've ever asked this question before. When it comes to friendship, gospel-centered friendship, how do you divide your time? As a Christian, do you spend all of your time with people who are like-minded, who are your same age and think like you or vote like you and it's just a good time or do you as a follower of Jesus spend all your time with those who are down and out or socially um, on the outside and and there's people in a variety of these camps and I think the opening of this passage teaches us is that there has to be a sensitivity that we carry to the Holy Spirit that we are not called to live our entire life with those who are easy to be around Right, But as we are called to love those who are hard to love, it does not mean that we have to, it has to be at the expense of our own soul or well-being. And there's an art form to this. Ultimately, rather than an art form, there's a relational element to this of what? Of trusting the Father. Jesus was willing to do something risky and courageous, and at the same time, he was willing to operate at a different pace than, than most. I was thinking of someone in my life who, who models this level of intentionality, spiritual intentionality in their friendships. And I was actually thinking of my friend, uh, Pat Dodd. And he's been a part of Light Church for uh, a long time, but he's been a part of my life for much longer. I've known him since third grade, and we grew up together. Um, and everyone who knows, uh, knows him kind of has this running joke that he's just like the professional friend. And the reason why that joke gets brought up so time is there's a level of thoughtfulness and intentionality that Patrick brings to his relationships that is remarkable. The details that he remembers, the generosity in which he operates with. Um, there was a time where um, a pastor in my life was incredibly generous to us. And he comes to me, he's like, hey, we should do something nice for him. He's like, what does he love? I'm like, well, he loves Pixar. He's like, great. I'm going to try and find him the ability to take a tour of Pixar Studios, which they don't give to the public. And sure enough, a couple months later, he found the right person, connected the right dots, and was able, through him, I was able to offer this gift. And there's this level of intentionality that he brings. And at the same time, it'd be easy to assume people like that are just run ragged. But one of the things I love about how Pat models friendship for me is that he doesn't run ragged. There is this wisdom that he operates and the sensitivity to the spirit that when people are asking un, literally ungodly amounts of his time or effort, he has this assuredness of him saying, no, it's okay, I can't offer that. And what it comes down to is that the maturity that he carries within his friendship is this level of of trust in the Father, that he knows what he can do, which is beautiful and unique and notable, but he's also aware of what he can't do. The cadence and the pace is as remarkable as his level of intentionality and thoughtfulness. The second thing that we see in this passage 
is that when Jesus shows up finally at the village where Lazarus has now been dead for four days, he is met by Lazarus's two sisters, first Martha and then Mary. I want to read this, um, this first one, this first account. It says, Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is able to come into the world. Now, I want you just to imagine this for a second. The, the one thing we know about this passage is this is Jesus' friends. He finally shows up, and Martha runs to meet him with, and if you've ever been around someone who's gone through a, a, a severe loss, there is this rawness to them. You can just imagine Martha running up with a mixture of anger and tears in her eyes with this statement, if you would have been here, this would not have happened. And, and Jesus's response to Martha is really unique. And, and what we'll find out later, it is, it's not the same response he gives to Mary. And he gives her truth. He literally, as, as she says, Lord, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died, but I know that even God will give you whatever you ask. It seems like there's this glimmer of hope. And he says, your brother will rise again. And Martha answered, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection of the last day. Like, I get that. But Jesus stops her and says this, this very incredible, like, um, kind of moniker statement. And he says, this, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. One of the things that we can learn from Jesus uh, when it comes to interacting with his friends is there are moments when confronting your friends that there is a need to remind them of the truth in love is a way that Paul puts in his letter to the Ephesians. And again, this is a very nuanced thing of how to do this and when to do this. But in Martha's case, Jesus, being as relationally connected, emotionally mature, spiritually in tuned as he was, knew that in that moment of crisis and pain, what would have ministered to Martha was truth. More than what we're even going to find with Mary, which was more comfort. He comes and speaks to her. It says, I am the resurrection and the life. The thing you're looking for is here, is in me. And he says, do you believe this? He, he speaks truth to her. And I think if we are to model our friendship after Jesus, it's not just finding that perfect cadence and pace and trusting our Father, but it's also knowing when and where and how to speak the truth and love to our friends. Because if you have friends, what you'll find is they'll be, they'll come confide in you. They'll, they'll say things to you that make sense. They'll say things to you that are raw. They'll say things to you out of just their vulnerability or their vent to you. And it's really easy just to absorb all that, especially for some of us. Our personality is just more of just like, yeah, whatever, whatever's going on. But there are times 
where God is asking us to actually speak the truth. And Jesus defines himself. Just when I say truth, it doesn't mean that like you're always right. By the truth, I mean, I mean it points to the reality of the kingdom of God, of a loving, of a loving Jesus who's come to be with us. And I think for some, and again, this is a lesson for me, because to be honest, um, sometimes it's hard to have hard conversations. Sometimes it's hard to speak the truth in love. Some of you, it's really easy and you need to work on the love part more than the truth part. But some of you, you need to work on the truth part and knowing that there are times, maybe even right now, you can think of scenarios that there are friends who are literally walking outside of God's will to the point where they're harming themselves and others. And you know the Holy Spirit is prompting you to go and speak truth to them in their state because they're being robbed of the abundant life that God is asking for them. And you might just be asking, well, how do you do that? And you'll notice here, Jesus doesn't give this same, frankly, blunt response to Mary like he does Martha. It's unique to Martha. And so I would encourage you, begin with prayer. Ask the Lord, is this a good time, a good space to bring these things up? Always begin with prayer. Secondly, um, listen first. James says that be, be quick to listen and slow to speak. And as you're listening, just in your prayers, evaluate is what I'm about to say them not just is it truth but is it truth motivated by love that I actually care about this person enough and then just another just practical thing Jesus didn't have to because he's God but just a relational element is if you have to say truth to someone who's a friend of yours ask permission just say can I can I share it with you it's on my heart could I just let you know just some things that I'm seeing and observing? And if that person is like, hey, I don't know if I want to hear that, then it's probably not the right time. But if that person invites you in, then I would encourage you with a sensitive, loving courage to speak the truth. And again, truth should always be wrapped up in who Jesus is and the reality that he brings. Because if you have that kind of courage, it will ultimately bring about life. Ralph Walder Emerson says this about friendship. I do not wish to treat friendships daintily, but with the roughest courage. When they are real, they are not glass threads or frost work, but the solidest things we know. An example of this is um, my brother Daniel, who's not just my brother, but he's, he's a dear friend of mine. Um, and when I need to hear truth, he's often who I call. Because he, I know he loves me and how he says it is so gentle and caring. But there's been multiple times in my life where he has spoken hard truth to me, even in the midst of a hard season or grief. I remember one time in particular um, when Jen was grieving the loss of her dad uh, 10 years ago. And I called and I was, we were newly married at the time. I remember calling my brother just just not knowing what to do, feeling overwhelmed with an inability to help my wife and just feeling incredibly depressed myself but not having the space to know how to process that. And I remember just venting to my brother and he just stops me and says, hey, Benji, you, you vowed for better or for worse. And this is for worse. So go love your wife. And it was like all I needed to hear. And that was the, like, the Christ-centered gospel truth I needed to hear that wasn't brash, it wasn't like overwhelming, it was loving, and it was exactly what my heart needed. Moving on, the next thing we see is, in, is Mary coming up to Jesus. We're talking about how to enter into the other's pain in your friendship. 
says, after he said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up and quickly went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews had been with Mary in the house comforting her, notice how quickly she got up and went out. They followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Listen, this sounds familiar. Lord, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. She literally verbatim says what Martha said earlier. But notice Jesus does not respond with a comment of truth. He responds like this. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. And the famous verse, shortest verse in the Bible, John 11.35, just says, Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him, confirming the level of friendship he had with him. And what I love about this scenario is Jesus knew when he was a town away that he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. He knew that he's moments away from raising his friend from the dead, the miraculous moment. If it was me, I would just be brimming with excitement. I would have said, Mary, stop crying. You don't need to cry. Watch what I'm about to do. Your morning is going to turn to dancing. I mean, there's just so much excitement that would have been built up within me. But Jesus in that moment, seeing Mary weep, weeps with her. What's that about? Where Martha comes up with this phrase, if you would have been here, he wouldn't have died. He speaks truth and love to her and he says, I'm the resurrection, the life. But when Mary comes weeping, saying the exact same comment, rather than giving her truth and rather than giving, giving her a dose of reality, saying, hey, listen, stop crying. I'm about to raise him from the dead. He just weeps with her. Part of being a friend like Jesus is knowing not only the cadence and the priorities of Jesus, not only knowing how to speak the truth in love, but it's also knowing when to enter into someone's pain. Like knowing how to enter, and it'd be so easy for us to have this image of God in our mind of him being removed emotionally from the suffering that you're currently going through. And I just want to let you know that the kind of friend that Jesus is and the kind of friend Jesus wants us to model ourselves after is the kind of friend who knows how to enter into others' pain with them and sit with them in it even if you are filled with faith and hope and you know what God's about to do? Are you the kind of person who can sit with someone in that? One of the greatest examples in my life of this is Jen, who is not only my wife, but she's honestly my best friend. And one of the things she constantly teaches me is how to sit with people in their pain and not try and rush to a solution. I think, guys, we are especially guilty of this. If we see someone crying, we see someone in pain, we think the best thing we can do is give them advice rather than giving them presents. And what I see Jen teach me again and again is to be a good friend means to notice, to sit with, to enter into someone's pain. An example of this was a few years ago while we were still youth pastors, we were putting on this this massive youth worship, multi-church, over a thousand high school students worshiping. And I'm sitting in the back, it was right before we we stopped our um, kind of career in youth ministry. And I remember just sitting back, just being like, do you see all of this stuff? Like all these high school students worshiping Jesus. And I turn around to just enjoy the moment with Jen and I can't find Jen. 
And I keep looking and all of a sudden I see Jen in the back of the room sitting on the floor with a high school girl who's weeping. And she's just sitting with her, praying over her. And it was this powerful moment when I was caught up in the, in the moment of a thousand students worshiping Jesus. She had entered into the pain of one student sitting in the back of the room. And I think this is so clearly identifies the heart of Jesus. This is what Jesus does. He's not, he doesn't gather the crowd and says, watch this. He draws near to Mary and enters her pain. The last, the last thing we see as we're traveling through this story is kind of the, the climax of this story. It says that Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. The Lord said, Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor for the, he has been, been there for four days. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you have sent me. When he said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. This is one of the most, uh, for me, just one of those radical moments in the gospel uh, for multiple reasons. One being Jesus knows that he's a week away from himself laying in a tomb similar to that. But in this moment, as he commands them to move the stone away, I can almost imagine him just being like, I know that's coming as well. But he says, there's something like, we can't do this because the stench, right? Like he's been, he's been laying there in, in the hot Israeli sun for four days. We can't roll this away. He says, you, didn't I tell you if you believe, you will see incredible, miraculous things. And as they do, he calls out to Lazarus, says, come out. One of the unique things about this story is as he comes out, I mean, like, just what, what a wild sight that would have been to see. He then tells the crowd around him, go take off his grave clothes. Kind of the, the Jewish burial rituals were to wrap um, the body in, in pounds and pounds of linen and spices and oils as a way to preserve the body. It's very important for Jewish people to preserve the body because they believed in the physical resurrection of the dead at the day of the Lord. And so this isn't just he's wrapped up in a blanket. This would have been a time-consuming task to go and to take off all of the grave clothes that would have been wrapping Lazarus up. And he gives them the command to do this. This kind of leads to our last point. That Jesus not only brings resurrection, which is obvious and, and profound and beautiful, but then he invites those around as a, as a communal act, take off the grave clothes. And there's something about gospel-centered friendships that doesn't only require a different level of priorities and cadence, doesn't just demand that we know how to speak the truth in love, doesn't just demand that we are able to enter into someone else's pain, but there will be times in our friendships where God is inviting us to join Him in the work of unwrapping the grave clothes from people. Have you ever been in those situations? Been around people and they carry around them the stench 
of brokenness, of lies, of abuse, of bad choices or choices that have been done to them. And God is not asking you to avoid them. He's inviting you to go near them and to be a part of the process of unwrapping those grave clothes. And I think that there is a, this is one of the unique elements. I mean, you don't have to be a follower of Jesus to want friends and to even be good at making friends, but this is a unique element to Christian friendship, is that we move towards those who have found themselves wrapped in a, in a lie, even to the point of death, and we are a part of that process of bringing about freedom in their life. Mother Teresa gave her life for this. She gave her life over to being with those whose society had said, you are lost, we cannot spend any more time on you. And in the orphanage in Calcutta, Mother Teresa had this prayer posted on her wall. It said this, people are often unreasonable, illogical, and self-centered. Forgive them anyway. If you are kind, people may accuse you of selfish ulterior motives. Be kind anyway. If you're successful, you will win some false friends and some true enemies. Succeed anyways. If you are honest and frank, people may cheat you. Be honest and frank anyway. What you spend years building, someone could destroy overnight. Build anyway. If you find serenity and happiness, they may be jealous. Be happy anyway. The good you do today, people will often forget tomorrow. Do good anyway. Give the world the best you have, and it may never be enough. Give the world the best you've got anyway. You see, in the final analysis, it is between you and God. It was never between just you and them anyway. We can do no great things, only small things with great love. And I think Mother Teresa is is one of those recent examples of us of someone who's willing to move into the scenarios and the relationships not as an act of um just altruism or philanthropy or compassion but just an act of friendship humanizing people unwrapping their grave clothes and in a world that has turned friendship into a commodity that because we don't live on farms anymore, that we need people for necessity. Now we just need people for our own upward mobility. Jesus calls us to be the kind of friend who unwraps grave clothes, who's not afraid of the stench that life brings, but is willing to move closer to them in that. One of my examples of this is just my friend Justice. He does this all the time with people. The people that people have like disregarded, forgotten, is where he moves towards naturally. He's done this in my own life. I remember before we planted the church and the fear and the insecurity of like, what's gonna happen? Do we have what it takes? He was the constant voice in my life who was unwrapping the grave clothes of the lies that I had believed and the lies that had been spoken of over me that I was not enough, this was not gonna work. And he continued just to contend, no, no, no. You are an amazing pastor. And just speak these things that just quite frankly, I don't know if I believed. But in doing that, he was unwrapping the grave clothes of those negative and and deadly thoughts that that had attached themselves to me. And so we have to kind of end today just asking ourselves in the story, like, well, where... Where are we in this story? Obviously, Jesus is the master friend, right? He's the master friend who follows the, 
the leading of his father. He's the master friend who knows when to speak the truth in love. He's the master friend who knows how to enter into people's pain. And he's the master friend who knows how to call collectively a community together to unwrap grave clothes. Where are we in this? Now, I would encourage you to envision yourself rather than just being Martha or Mary or the crowd, that you are actually Lazarus. You're the one who Jesus moved towards in your own death and has called you to life, to new birth. And as he's called you out of that and called you into that resurrection life, he's not only called you into a new life for yourself, but a new life given over for him that you would find yourself following him in his footsteps, in his values, in his character, in his priority. To be a friend like Jesus has been a friend. One of my favorite the way the story ends is what happens next, right? That Jesus ends the story going to Lazarus's house with Mary and Martha and they're throwing a dinner and the crowd's coming from Jerusalem to come and see this miraculous thing that he has done and recognizing what would happen if that was us. If we lived in such a way that people wanted to come and see the miraculous thing that God has done in you and is now doing through you for others. And whether you're Lazarus is a signpost to who Jesus is, whether you're Martha who is spending her time serving Jesus with her whole heart, whether you're Mary who's broken ointment at his feet and giving everything you've got in worship, rather than being the kind of friend who feels like a martyr, a doormat, a know-it-all, a climber, a someone who's just trying to use friendships for their own things, would we model our friendship after Jesus? And remembering this, John 15, 15 says this, No longer do I call you servants, because a servant doesn't know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything I've learned from my Father, I've made known to you. Oswald Chambers summarizes like this, The dearest friend on earth is a mere shadow compared to Jesus Christ. So two things. Would you feel the welcoming invitation of Jesus Christ into friendship more than servitude and also would you look to jesus as the model to be a good friend and i know this has been a costly couple of years the friendships have been divided over things like politics and things like policies and all that's going on but i would just encourage you do not let yourself be overcome by all that's gone on, but through Jesus' example, move towards sometimes even the hardest scenarios and to choose to model ourselves after he did. And if you're looking for friendship, hey, I'm glad you're part of Light Church. Hopefully it's going to be a place where you find that. We're about to launch open tables. It'd be a great place to start. But, but two places I would encourage you to start, even before a small group or an open table, is this. Number one, would you pursue friendship with Jesus because he's already pursuing it with you? And secondly, as you're praying for friends to come into your life, would you also continue to pray that Jesus would use, use you to be a friend that unwraps the grave clothes of the, those around you and that you'd be that kind of friend because that's the kind of friend Jesus has been to you. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that we are called your friend. And then John 11, you show what kind of friend you are. A radical, courageous, yet trusting and yielding friend, a friend who speaks the truth when we need it, a friend who 
weeps with us when we need it, and a friend who calls us into life and unwraps the grave clothes we've carried. We ask you just to continue to let us recognize that kind of friendship you've given to us and for that to influence the kind of friend we are to others. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining us here at the Light San Diego podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. For more information, please visit our website, lightsandiego.com.